um, dealing with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But um, today we end our series, so it's been a, an enjoyable uh, learning thing for me as well. But um, if you haven't been with us, basically Nehemiah is a guy who was in a pagan palace. He had a passion for the children of Israel. He made a very long journey to rebuild the walls of the city of Jerusalem. He, with the help of God and the people, was able to do that which was almost impossible. In 52 days, they restored the walls of Jerusalem. And when, so you and I have a little bit of a, a frame of reference. You're talking about a wall at least 8 to 10 feet wide, uh, 20 to 40 feet high, almost 2 miles long. So as you drive from here to Climbing Hill, if you would imagine a wall 8 to 10 feet tall, or 8 to 10 feet wide, um, as long as, as tall in some places as 40 feet, you would get an idea of the task ahead of those people. They were able to accomplish it in 52 days, less than two months. Um, so it was a monumental feat. Uh, once, so the first part of Nehemiah verses chapters 1 through 6 deal with the building of that wall and all the problems that came up. From chapter 7 on, the children of Israel now focus on the group of people that is gathered inside of the, inside of the walls of Jerusalem. And they start to repopulate the city. And we talked last week about the dedication of those walls and how everybody was so excited over the, uh, what God had done and, whoa, um, and, and what God had done and accomplished through that, uh, through that, that process. And so this morning we come to the last chapter. Now, what I need to explain to you and what you need to understand is that as you read it, if you're not careful, you'll miss a very, very important point. And the point is this. Between chapter 12 and chapter 13 is a period of between 10 and 12 years. Um, that becomes very important to us. Because if you're reading along and you don't catch that and you don't understand that, you wonder, how do these people go from dedicating and making a covenant to God to all of a sudden, boom, they stop and then they go 180 degrees in the other direction. Because what you're going to see in this chapter is what happens is Nehemiah comes back. Uh, he, he goes away for 10 years, he goes 10 to 12 years, goes back to the palace, he starts doing his deal there, and then he decides to come back to Jerusalem 10 to 12 years later. And what he finds is not what he left. So Nehemiah is going to, we're going to talk about what he sees and the issues, and then we're going to talk about what he does about it. Um, because there are some great lessons for us in our lives, because it's easy for us to start well, and it's easy for us to have great intentions, but if we're not careful, we go down some of the same roads that you find the children of Israel going down. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So I'm going to jump kind of a little bit past verse 1, but Nehemiah chapter 13, and here's what it says. During this time I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, the king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then, after certain days, I obtained a leave from the king, and I came to Jerusalem, and I discovered the evil <clears throat> that Eliashab had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. Now, we're introduced to a couple of people we need to remember. Eliashib is the, he's the, he's the priest. He's the important priest, the high, uh, the high priest of the deal. And it says that he has prepared a room in the courts of the house of God. Here's, when you look at verse 1 and you read the story, here's what the guy did. The priest comes in and he says, you know what? 
I'm going to make a place in the temple area for Tobiah. Now, those of you who've been with us on this journey, you remember Tobiah? Tobiah is a guy who has been against the building of the walls the whole time. And if you remember, when we got into chapters 5 and 6 and 7 in there, Tobiah is the guy who had married his way in to the leadership, and the leadership was coming to Nehemiah and saying, hey, you need to let Tobiah, you know, Tobiah's a good guy, Nehemiah, you need to listen to Tobiah. And yet, the scripture teaches us that Tobiah is the one who is secretly writing letters threatening Nehemiah to Nehemiah. So this is a guy who from the get-go, from chapter 1, has been against this whole project. And even when the project got done, he got involved in it trying to get people to, to, um, to side with him. And as people tried to side with him, Nehemiah just kept saying, no, 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 no. And here's why. Tobiah was an Ammonite. Okay? Um, now, you've got to go back a little bit in your, in your Bible history. And if you'll remember, the children of Israel, they come out of Egypt. Um, they start to wander, they start to get near the promised land, and the Ammonites and the Moabites should have offered them water and food. That was a common courtesy of the day. But the Ammonites and the Moabites, when they heard about the children of Israel, decided to hire a prophet by the name of, of, of Balaam to go and prophesy against the children of Israel. And you remember the story. Balaam had a donkey, and the donkey saw the angel and the whole thing and and finally the donkey tell, told Benly the donkey speaks and tells Balaam the prophet of God basically look buddy you're up against God just give it up now and every time Balaam would would try to utter utter a curse upon Jerusalem upon Israel he would utter a blessing and that whole story as a result of that God set it up and said no Moabite or no Ammonite should have anything to do with the children of Israel if they're going to continue pursuing that so that was 900 years earlier. So the children of Israel should not have had any involvement with the Ammonites and the Moabites. And yet, here we have Tobiah, who's an Am- in, not just in Jerusalem, he's in the temple area in Jerusalem, and he's got an apartment. Now here's the problem. In order to give him an apartment, what did the priest have to do? The priest had to go in and clear out an area for him to have an apartment. So you know what the priest did? He took one of the storehouses where all of the goods for temple worship were stored, cleaned it all out, moved Tobiah in. Then he went to the people and said, look, we don't have room now to store the extra tithes and offerings, so you can just stop giving now. So now the people stopped giving. The problem is, as the people were giving, that was allowing the temple worship to go on, and that was how they used to take care of the Levites. So now, the Levites don't have anything, any way to support themselves. So the Levites now are going out and getting jobs and working, and they can't be at the temple anymore. Also, that Tobiah could live in the temple area. So Mr. Nehemiah comes traveling back from the palace, and he's... He says, okay, guys, show me what we've got going on. And all of this was set up in chapter 12. He comes to the temple area, and he goes, where's all the grinding stuff? Oh, this is Tobiah's stuff. Excuse me? Oh, yeah, Tobiah lives here now. He's got an apartment. This is his second home now. And we'll talk about how Nehemiah deals with this in a minute. I'm going to talk to you all about he sees and then what he sees, and then we're going to talk about how he handles each problem. So Nehemiah realizes we got a big problem here. 
And by the way, and so Nehemiah goes, well, well, when I came in here, I didn't see any, any Levites out at the gate. Where, where are the Levites? Oh, they're having to work now. Well, why are they working? Well, we can't, we can't pay them anymore because we don't have a place to put the tithes and offerings because the priest told the people he didn't have to give anymore. But we've got a place for Tobiah to live here in the temple area. You see the problem? Okay. So then Nehemiah decides to continue walking around Jerusalem. And notice what he, said, notice what he sees in the next passage, uh, the next problem that he sees. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wines, grapes, and figs and all kinds of burdens which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about that day and that, that they were on, on which they were selling provisions. Remember, one of the things the children of Israel did has said, we're going to honor the Sabbath. We're going to put the Sabbath first again. And Nehemiah, on the Sabbath, he looks out and he sees it just being another day. He watches people coming in. He watches people selling. He watches people uh, uh, treading out wine and everything else. And he's thinking, what? What in the world is going on? This wasn't the place I left 10, 12 years ago. I mean, when I left 10, 12 years ago, they were saying, let's, make, let's consecrate ourselves. Let's, let's make a covenant with God that we will never do this ever again. And now 10, 12 years later, they are right back to where they, where they shouldn't be. And if that wasn't enough, notice what happens next as he continues to walk around. Uh, jump that verse, jump that next section up. Verse 23. In those days, I also saw Jews who had married the women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. This was clearly forbidden. And Nehemiah's walking around, and he sees these children, and he knows they're not all Jewish, and so he walks up to them and says, Hi, my name's Nehemiah, what's your name? And notice what it says. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah. So Nehemiah walks up, and in Hebrew starts talking to them, and they're looking at him going, I don't have no clue what you're saying. And he says, but spake according to the language of one or the other people. All of a sudden, they start talking this language. Now, wait a minute. I'm in Jerusalem. Why are you speaking another language? This is supposed to be Hebrew people. This is supposed to be Jewish people. We're supposed to be going into the world and showing them God. And they don't even know the language of our God? So you can understand the guys at this point a little perturbed. Let's just say it that way. Okay? So the question is, how does Nehemiah, the man of God, the man who's a man of prayer and has been for 12 chapters, how does, and by the way, let me say this, because the things that I'm going to tell you are going to be pretty extreme. You need to understand this. Four times of this chapter, it talks about Nehemiah praying. So please understand, this isn't a guy who just loses it but you're going to think he does, all right? So let's see how he handles Mr. Tobiah first. Here's what it says. Um, The first thing that you see right off the bat is, here's what it says, and it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room and commanded them to cleanse the rooms, and I brought back into the articles of the house of God and the grain offering and the frankincense. So here's basically what he says. He comes in and he says, guess what? See all that stuff? Put it on the street. Now, this would have been humiliating to Tobiah because, first of all, he's now married into the priestly line, partly. And he's somewhat part Jew because he actually has a Jewish name, Tobiah. 
And so all of a sudden now, he's going to come back, and he's going to see all his stuff out on the outside. And Nehemiah basically says, okay, guys, after you get all of his stuff out, let's get rid of it. Now, the next thing I want you to do is I want you to clean this place top to bottom. Now, we're going to get back to what it was supposed to be designed for, and we're going to put the stuff back in it and the frankincense, and we're going to put back in the grain offering, and we're going to use this for what God intended it to be used for. Now, think about this for a minute. If you're the priest who has allowed this to go on, how do you think you're looking in front of the people? So Nehemiah is not afraid at all to play politics here and make this, okay, I'm going to make sure everybody is comfortable with the way I lead. He came in and cleaned house. Uh, you keep going on in this passage, what you'll find, he sets up a different leadership. He sets up a different system of accountability. But he comes right in and deals with it right off the bat. Notice what he does on the Sabbath deal. Um, because here's what happens. These people had dishonored God's word. And, 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 and Nehemiah said, you know, we're going to fix this. Notice what he does with the Sabbath principle. And so it was that the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, that I commanded the gates to be shut. And I charge that they must not be opened until after the Sabbath. So first thing he does, he gets up and he says, okay, it's now Sabbath. Lock the doors. Nobody's coming in. Nobody's going out. And, he's, and everybody's, can you imagine the people standing at the gate? Yeah, but I got to go out and buy food. No, no, you're not buying today. It's the Sabbath. It's over. It changes today. And notice what happened, because the Bible is really nice about this. It says, and I commanded, and charged that they must not be opened. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath. So now you have all these people traveling who've been used to be doing, doing business on the Sabbath, and they come up and they see the gates locked, and they say, well, we need to get in because we've got to deal with so-and-so. And that deal closes today, and they're going, sorry, you ain't getting in today. <clears throat> and notice what it says. Now the merchants and sellers and all kinds lodged outside Jerusalem, and notice this passage, once or twice. Okay? So here's what happened. There are guys that actually sat outside the gate and said, you know what? That's okay. We can't open up shop in the city. We'll just set up. And the, the men of Tyre were the ones who were specifically doing it. We'll just set up our fish stand outside the city. And maybe we can catch some people one way or the other. Nehemiah actually goes out to the men of Tyre and basically says this. Two choices. If you stay here, my soldiers are going to come and they're going to carry you away. Or you can leave on your own. This passage says uh, they lodged outside once or twice. Okay? They got the message because Nehemiah was serious. He's like, you know what? We're going to honor the Sabbath. We are going to honor God with the Sabbath just like we're supposed to. And then, this is where it really gets dicey. Notice what he does to the people who had married other people, what they weren't supposed to. Uh, going on the next one. I got this small because I got a lot to read. So I contended with them and cursed them, struck some of them, pulled out their hair, and made them swear by God, saying. Now, literally, this idea of pull out their hair, it had this Jewish idea. In the Jewish world, people often had long beards. And you, you see this in Isaiah. One of the ways to shame someone was to pull their beard, okay? Um, and, and, and you literally pulled the hairs out of their beard to shame them because that was considered a, a, a badge of honor. And so, literally, the idea is, he says... He, he pulls out their hair. He literally shames them that way and says, You shall not give your daughters and wives and sons, nor take the daughters of your wives for yourselves. Did not King Solomon sin by these things? Yet among many nations there was no king like him. 
who was beloved of God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nonetheless, pagan women caused even him to sin. Should we not then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against God by marrying pagan women? And then one of the sons of Jariah, the son of Elisha, the high priest, who was a son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite, therefore I threw him out from me. Thus I cleansed them of everything pagan. In other words, one of the sons of the high priest, he looked at and said, you leave. You are no longer part of this place. Goodbye. Now, there's a reason for that, because you've got to understand, he's in the high priestly line. And if he's married to a pagan woman, that pollutes the high priestly line. So Nehemiah comes in and makes no bones about it and throws him out of the city. And he says, you know what? This is not right. This does not honor God. You, ha- you know better than this. We are solving this. You're out. And, you know, he's serious. I mean, you get, you get the impression here. He's serious about this. Because Nehemiah understood this idea that we're going to honor God. So, and then I'm going to look at the last two verses at the end. But um, this is the story. This is the story. And I think there's some great lessons for, for all of us as we look at this, because you learn some things about why Nehemiah does this, okay? And, and, and here's the first thing. The first thing that you see with the children of Israel here is they had failed to honor God's word and be obedient. They knew better, and the high priest knew better than to allow the Ammonites and the Moabites to be a part of this thing. They knew that God had said 900 years early, this is not going to happen. And yet, Somehow, in their mind, they thought, you know what, it'll be okay. It's not that big a deal. Yeah, we know that's what God says, but it's just not that big a deal. It will be okay. Our our situation, it's different. And we think we should let it happen. Even the high priest had come to the point that the word of God was not that important anymore, that it was okay. Well, you know, I mean, my son, he really likes this girl, and you know, I mean, you know, the Jewish girls, I mean, they're like, okay, but the Ashdod girls, they're really hot. You know, and so, you know, it's okay. Because, after all, you know, if we marry an Ashdod girl, you know, maybe we can reach those people for, for God. And Nehemiah comes in right off the bat, and one of the things that he says is basically, he says, you know what? God said, this is what you're supposed to do, and this is what we're going to do. Please hear me this morning. We are in a culture that is inclusive. We are in a culture which says everybody should be able to have their opinion and you should agree with it. We're in a culture which says there are no absolutes. Everything is in flux. Everything is gray. There are no black and white. You need to understand, if you're going to base your, your, your life on that book, it is black and white. It is not inclusive when it comes to these issues of God has fudge room. The message of Christianity is an exclusive message. It is a message where Jesus Christ came to this earth and he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one gets to the Father but through me. 
The message of Christianity is Jesus Christ is the only way. There is no other way. Oh, but you don't understand. I know people who they live better than most Christians, and they're really, really sincere. They've not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There is no other way. That's what Jesus said. And we have to get back to the point in our lives where we understand clearly what the Word of God teaches, and we say, if that's what God says, then that's the way it's going to be. I don't know if any of you saw the special last week on Billy Graham that ran during prime time. But when you look at Billy Graham's life and ministry, there was a point in, in which most of you probably aren't aware of this, but there was a big controversy in Christianity as far as the authority of the Word of God. And at that point, there are a lot of mainline denominations that walked away from saying the Bible is the authority for faith and practice. And they started saying, we will allow culture to shift it. And so they started questioning whether or not it was the actual Word of God and whether it had authority in your life. And Billy Graham almost went, really struggled with it and finally came to a point in his life where he said, from this point on in my life, if the Bible teaches this, this is what I will teach regardless of anything that happens in the culture. And he, he took a lot of flack for it because there are some issues in which um, when you look at the racism thing, that was going on in the day. There were a lot of people that were taking shots at him because Billy Graham, I mean, he, he was the one who went into his crusades and, and told him, take down the road. There's not going to be a colored section, a white section. In Christ, we are all the same. So you know what? Everybody's allowed to sit together. And, you know, that, why? Because that's what the Bible teaches. It, it, in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. And so, you know, he, he basically came to a point where he said, if this is what the Word of God teaches, this is what we're going to embrace. And I want to challenge you because we are in a culture which is trying to tell the church how it should interpret the Bible. And you need to know, we have Holly Springs Bible Fellowship on the sign for a reason. And the reason is that is our authority for faith and practice. The government can define marriage any way they want to define marriage. It doesn't matter to me. We will not change the way God defined marriage. And in Genesis, God made it very clear. One man, one woman equals marriage. You go, well, but I know people who are like, yeah. okay, I'm telling you how the Bible defines it, and I'm telling you how we define it. We're not going to look at culture. And, and it's the same way. <clears throat> if you're a Christian here this morning, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you put your faith and trust in Christ, and you're going to follow that book, do you understand that forgiveness is not an option for you? Do you understand that if somebody has hurt you and somebody has done something wrong with you and you go, I just don't know if I can forgive them, do you understand that as a Christian you don't get that choice? Because the Bible says, and it's a command, forgive one another as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. You don't get the option to not forgive as a believer. You go, well, you don't know how much they hurt you. Let me tell you something. I guarantee you, they have not hurt you more than your sin has hurt Christ. And yet he forgave, and he said, well, I'm the standard. You forgive others as I've forgiven you. That's your standard. If you're a husband here this morning, you know what? You don't have a choice as far as how you are to treat your wife. The Bible is very, very clear. That you are to honor her, you are to respect her, you are to put on her a pedestal, basically. You are to, there should be no other woman higher in your life than her. Men, women, same thing. You submit to one another, husbands to wives, wives to husbands, children to parents. You submit to one another. 
uh, all of us, one another. We submit to one another in Christ. Why? Serving, helping, honoring, preferring one another. That's our obligation. Why? Because that's what the book says. And one of the things that we've got to realize, Israel got away from God, and they got away from God, and they started saying, you know what, the Moabite Ammonite thing, well, they look like 900 years ago, really doesn't apply to us. And, you know, I mean, you know, he needs a place to live, so we can move some stuff out of the, 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 the storeroom, and we can make some room for him. And they had all kinds of reasons and excuses. And when Nehemiah comes in, he goes, no, no, we're getting back to what God said, and this is the way we're going to do it. Second thing he does is he addresses the way that they're dishonoring time and the Sabbath. Um, let me say a couple of things about the Sabbath. First of all, let's understand that in the Old Testament, the Sabbath is Saturday, not Sunday. Okay? Um, let's understand that when, the, when Jesus comes out of a tomb, that the Christian church decides that from that point on, they're going to worship on the first day of the week, Sunday, which is why we gather this morning, because of the resurrection. Um, so uh, when you look at the commandments... And when you look at the tent, you go, well, it's, it's one of the Ten Commandments to, you know, remember the Sabbath. But when you look at the New Testament, it's the only commandment that's not reiterated in the New Testament to obey. It's interesting. Okay? All the others are, but that one's not. But what you find in the, in the Old Testament is this, and this is the thing. You find what we call a Sabbath principle. Okay? And so I want to share with you this idea. The idea is that you pull aside out of seven days, you pull aside one day. On that one day, you're to do two things, okay? You find the first thing that you're supposed to do in the creation story, because in the creation story, Genesis, what do you find? God creates the world on six days, and then on the seventh day, he does what? He rests. Okay, now, have you ever thought about this for a minute? How did God create the world? He did what? Anybody know? He spoke it into existence. Okay, so let me ask you something. How exhausting is it to say stars? Moon, water. It's not like it's a lot of work. Okay? So when we read that God rests on the seventh day, we're not saying he's so exhausted from creating for six days he had to take a breather. So when we talk about rest in the creation story, here's what we're talking about. We're talking about the idea of reflection. We're talking about the idea of God stepping back and observing that which he had done. We're talking about God taking time to step away and go, you know what, I'm going to get to enjoy some of that which I have created. It is the idea of reflection. It is the idea of focus, kind of like what my wife was saying this morning. You know, you, you choose what you focus on. Part of, 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 of the Sabbath principle is you spend one day a week reflecting on that which, on that which we call your life, Okay. You look at the good things, you look at the bad things, you look at things you need to change, look at things that you did well, you appreciate the things that you have, you enjoy some of the things, you reflect on it, okay? It's not the idea of just taking one day a week and sleeping for 14 hours, although that wouldn't hurt some of you, because um, you run exhausted. The second idea behind the, behind the Sabbath is a little bit more difficult to, to comprehend, but you, you, let me help you flesh it out a little bit, okay? And you find it in Deuteronomy. And one of the things that when God gives the Sabbath principle to the children of Israel, in Deuteronomy, one of the things that God says is this. When you were in slavery, how many days a week did you work? Seven. That's right. Why? Because you're a slave. So you worked seven days a week. How many weeks out of a year did you work? Fifty-two. 
exactly right. Why? Because work consumed your life because you were a slave. <clears throat> when God establishes the Sabbath principle for the children of Israel, one of the things that he says is, I don't want you as my people to be a slave to work anymore. I want you to be able to rest one day and reflect on me and trust me that you will get the work done that you need to do so that you are not a slave to work anymore. So the concept that's, that's fleshed out in Deuteronomy is this idea of one of the reasons I pull away one day a week is so that work does not consume my world. One of the reasons I pull away one day a week is because if I'm not careful, I start to believe that if I don't work seven days, I can't get it all done. So it all depends on who? Me. Whereas when I guarantee or I take apart and say I'm going to take one day and focus on, reflect on God, rest, I'm going to trust God that, you know what? I'm going to, here's ultimately what you're saying. I'm going to trust God okay, that I can get seven days' worth of work with his help by resting one day, more than I can get seven days' worth of work done working it on my own. It's what we were talking about in Sunday school. It's a priority thing. And by the way, it's great if you can, but Sunday is the first day of the week, so it's that idea of putting God first in priority as well. And so I encourage you to embrace this idea that all of a sudden you go, yeah, but you don't understand how busy my life is. You know what? I get it. And I understand there's seasons. I understand when planting and harvest and all that kind of thing. I'm talking about it as a way of life. But when you get to the mindset that I have to do it all and I can't rest, then it's all about you. It's all about you trusting in yourself. Whereas this idea of a Sabbath rest, this idea of pulling away one day a week, it's a reminder that, you know what? God's important here, and my life is not about all about work, and I am not a slave to my job. And that's an important principle, and I think in our culture, we're missing that. And I want to challenge some of you. Now, again, you know, you're going, are you saying you should never, ever work on Sunday? No, I'm not saying that at all. I mean, look, look if I have a heart attack this afternoon, believe me, I'm going to be really happy that there are paramedics working and that there are hospital staff working and there are people there. I'm, I'm not talking about that, okay? I'm talking about as a way of life when you're working 24-7, seven, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, and, you know, you've taken off time. I mean, you've taken off time on the, on the, the day of all days to miss church. I mean, you know, fast forward, your clock's ahead an hour. I mean, you lost an hour and yet you're still here to give it up. So, you know, I understand I'm preaching a choir to a point. But I want to challenge you with this idea of making sure that you spend time. You know, because again, it's not about not working on Sunday, so to speak. You know, I, I've worked Sunday every day of my life, you know, every year. I can tell you last time I didn't work on Sunday, you know. Um, so I, I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about the idea of setting up a Sabbath, a time that you carve out every week to say, you know what, this is a time of reflection. This is a time of rest. This is a time where I'm going to trust God that I'll get the rest of it done. And it's an important principle. He comes into the children of Israel and he says, we are doing this, folks. This is the way it is going to be. And he makes it so they can't do it anymore. And then the last area is with their families. Um, he gets things set up right with the families. Now, let me tell you, let me, let me make sure I'm really clear on this. 
You need to understand Satan wants to destroy your family. He's really not particular about what way he does it. There's an attack on marriages and there's an attack on families today like there has never been before. And Satan will do everything he can to undermine your marriage. He will get you so wrapped up in your world that you don't have time for each other. Um, he will get you fighting about stuff that doesn't matter. He will use money. He will use uh, careers. He, he, he does, he's not particular on his method. He'll just figure out something that works for you and do it. And you need to understand that Satan is working very hard to destroy marriages today and undermine it. Here's an interesting principle. When Tobiah moves into the temple, that which was necessary moved out. You get that? In order to make room for Tobiah, we had to move that which was necessary for worship and that which was important out of the temple area. And now it affects everything. Now worship can't be what it was supposed to be because we don't have enough stuff, so the Levites now have to go. So it has this ripple effect. The same thing is true in your life and my life. When we, if we're not careful, we allow things to come in that move the necessary important things in our life out. And they get taken up by things that shouldn't be there. I say it this way. Most of us do that which is urgent in our day, not that which is important. Because we are run by the tyranny of the urgent. We are run by whatever is, 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 comes up on my screen today that I have to do or whatever phone call I have to take, and we run and we spend, and if you think about it for a minute, busyness is one of the greatest tools of Satan today. Because if he can keep you busy, you can't think about your spiritual life, you can't focus on things that are important, all you do is run from fire to fire to fire to fire to fire. And that's exactly where he has some of you right now. You're doing all kinds of things. You're running 24-7, all different kinds of directions and everything else. But the reality of it is, you're not doing that which is important. Those of you with young kids, hear me. Talk to older people. You know what they'll tell you? Most of them will tell you they spent their life doing things that were urgent, but not things that were important. And they would give anything to go back and redo raising their children and focus on things that were important, not things which were urgent. I listened to my dad tell me over and over again every time I visited how sorry he was that he spent all his time for Texaco and not time with his family. And I just said, Lord willing, it's not going to be my story. And, and, and I want to challenge you with this. Do that which is important, not that which is urgent. You go, yeah, 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 but you don't understand. I've got all these opportunities. I've got all these opportunities. Got and you don't understand. Satan will make sure those opportunities are always there. And you go, yeah, but they're good opportunities. Yes, Satan will make sure there are good opportunities always there. Because he's a master at that. You're the one that has to decide, wait a minute, what's important? Yes, is that a great opportunity? Yes, but is it important? Is it what I need to be focused on? And what happened is Tobiah came along, you know, it'd be really nice to have Tobiah around because, I mean, after all, you know, I mean, he's married to, you know, my relative, and I'd get to have my kids around a little bit more. And so, you know, if I can move right in the temple, that would be awesome. And, and people will understand because I'm trying to be a family guy, and, you know, this will work out okay. And he took that which was important and pushed it aside in order 
to have what he wanted. And, and Satan will do the same thing with you and I. And I want to challenge you with this idea. What is important to you? And here's what I found. My limited life experience, here's what I found. When somebody goes into a hospital, everything on your list that's urgent goes away. Why? Because it's important that you be there. What would happen if you and I lived every day by doing that which was important? That which honored God, that which God wanted us to do rather than that which was urgent. I would say it this way, you would live a life that you would come to the end of it and say, no regrets. But I deal with too many people who come to the end of their life and say, woulda, coulda, shoulda. And I don't want it to be my story, I don't want it to be your story. And I want to challenge you to really step back and look at your life and say, what's important here? I mean, where I am in my world and my walk and my journey right now, what's really, really important? And I think what you will find is family comes to the top. And yet, I think if you look at your life, who in your world gets leftovers? Often isn't it family? They don't get your best time. They get your leftover time. Well, are you living life by that which is important? By that, or life by that which is urgent? And I want to challenge that way because it is so important, folks, that we get this. Nehemiah came back after 10, 12 years and said, you guys aren't honoring God by being obedient to his word. We're going to change that right now. You guys have missed the whole idea of worshiping God and honoring God with your time and the Sabbath thing. And we're going to change that right now. And you guys have stopped honoring God with your family. And we're going to change that right now. We're going to get rid of things. We're gonna, if it's pagan... If it's pulling us aside, it's out. I want to talk to those of you who are dating, those of you who are looking for somebody. I cannot stress the importance of finding somebody who is a believer and who has faith and trust in Christ alone. You go, well, you know, I'll never forget years ago, I had a girl, youth group, back when I was youth pastor, a girl came to me, we were talking, she was dating an unsaved guy, and she actually tried to convince me that this is what God had called her to do. And I'm serious. She said, you know, I really believe that God's using me to be able to lead these young men to Christ so that they can become Christian. And so we're having this discussion. I knew better than that because it just so happened they all had a certain look. Um, and so I said, I'll tell you what, you genuinely believe that's what God has for you? She said, yes, I do. I said, okay, then here's what we're going to do from this point on. I said, I have a list of guys that I know that need to come to Christ. I said, I'm just going to set up date after date after date with you so you can lead them to the Lord. And she knew what kind of guys I was going to pick. Okay? And all of a sudden, it was like, oh, no, no, that's not what I want. And I said, exactly. Let's call it what it is. You're making excuses here. You're making excuses here. Because here's what you will find. When you start down that road, when you start down that road, they will influence you. You will not influence them. That is the rare exception. And if you are willingly going to go down that path, here's what you will find. You know what? You know how I know that? Because hundreds of years ago, and throughout the whole teaching of Scripture, here's what you see. You see, within 10 years, a group of Jewish people who had married people outside of their faith to the point that 
they can't even speak their own language. They're speaking the pagan language of their pagan moms or their pagan dads. So who influenced who? And they can't even learn about the Hebrew God because they don't even know the Hebrew language. Because as they were brought up, it wasn't the godly person going, I'm going to teach you Hebrew, son or daughter. It was the other spouse who was saying, listen, we're, we're surrounded by these Jewish people, but let me tell you about my God. Let me tell you about what I believe. And it got to the point that, that they couldn't even communicate with their own children about the God of the Hebrews. And Nehemiah said, this is not why God has brought us together. God has brought us together to show the world what God looks like. And if we don't even know that God, how can we give him that message? And he said, we're going to get some things right in families. And we're going to get back to the idea of honoring God with our families and the, the, the family unit to be able to take Christ into a world. And I just want to challenge you along those lines. Because what you see here is you see a guy who after 10, 12 years walks back in and he says, all right, we're going to be obedient to God. We're going to honor God with our time. And we're going to honor God with our families. And there's probably no greater challenge for us. Last two verses, here's how the book ends. Because this is the thing in a nutshell. All 13 chapters in a nutshell. Uh, bring me back up the last one, guys. <clears throat> um, nope. Nope. There we go. I also assign duties to the priest and the Levites, each to his service, and to bring in the wood offering and the first fruits at the appointed time. This is how the book ends. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Nehemiah says, you want to know why you've read my story for the last 13 chapters? You want to know what's important in, the last, in, in all of this whole book? I've lived for an audience of one. I haven't been concerned about what's politically correct. I haven't been concerned about what everybody wanted me to do. I haven't been focused on all of that and making sure everything was all smoothed over and everybody was happy with my performance as a leader. God, I want you to remember me because what I did was for your honor and your glory to bring your people to you. That's all I care about. And I want to challenge you, because is that not our challenge this week? To live for an audience of one? The fact that I put my head on my pillow tonight, I can say, Lord, you've been, I trust you've been pleased with my life today. I trust that I've honored you, that I've been obedient, that I've honored you with my time, that I've honored you with my family, that I've honored you with everything that I have said and done today, that you've been pleased. And he comes to the end of this whole building of the wall and this incredible story, and he says, God, I want you to be pleased with it. That's all I care about at this point. So I end with this. I end with this idea that as you read this story, Nehemiah continues to focus on God's word, worship, and family. He lives his life for an audience of one, and he wants God pleased with every aspect of it. You and I this week are to follow the example he set in this book, and we're to honor God with every area of our life.